Ronald Koeman is out as Barcelona manager. What went wrong? Also, Ajax have been one of the best teams, not just in the Netherlands this season, but in all of Europe will break them down. And German wonder kid Florian Wirtz has been tearing up the Bundesliga with Bayer Leverkusen. We'll discuss his game and what it is that he does so, so well. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Tactics Room podcast presented by Breaking the Lines. My name is Will Fowler. Welcome... Welcome to episode six, our first ever episode six, uh, our last ever episode six, but our first ever episode six. It is so good to have you here for this week's edition where we'll break down some of football's biggest storylines on the planet is what we talk about here. Hope you're all well. Hope you're all doing fantastic. It's been some time, I believe, since we last spoke in a podcast setting. Um, Of course, episode five was an interview with the Euro expert, Alex Barker, a bit special, bit of a Bit of, a, bit of a special episode that one was, and I strongly recommend everybody go back and listen to it. But today we're back to the traditional structure, and I have my microphone back. Uh, the real ones know that the last two podcast episodes have been a struggle uh, in terms of audio quality. You know, when you podcast, uh, literally the only thing you need is a microphone. There's a checklist of items that are, are necessary to podcast. And there's one item on the checklist, and it is a microphone. And my microphone hadn't been working, so I was 0 for 1. But uh, that is no longer the case. My microphone is back. I've got my cable, and hopefully this sounds better. It would sound really silly if I was going on and on about how how much better the audio quality is going to be. And it's been just as brutal. So hopefully the audio quality is better, but I guess you'll be the judge. Uh, I will not. Here's what we're doing today, as I kind of alluded to. Barcelona have finally sacked their manager in, uh, in Ronald Koeman. Former player, was it his fault? Or was he destined to fail? Spoiler alert, it's a little bit of both. Also, Eric Ten Hag is potentially in the running to replace him, though I think it's pretty obvious at this point. It's going to be Xavi, which will be a storyline in and of itself, and I'm sure we'll discuss that at a later date if that deal goes through. But uh, Ten Hag, of course, the man in charge of a really good Ajax side right now, so we'll take a look at them. And I also want to talk about a player that's really caught my eye uh, and broken out this season. We've been hearing about him for a while as uh, a wonder kid, part of that next generation, but this year we're really seeing Florian Wirtz in the present and what he can and do. We're going to talk about him as well. Also, Bet the Bank. For you returners, you know what Bet the Bank is. We'll get back into that. We missed it in episode five, um, but we're going to get back to it. If you're a new listener, stay tuned. You'll find out what Bet the Bank is. Before we jump into it, if you're new, I'd like to give you a brief rundown of, uh, of what the point of this podcast is and what we're actually doing here. Uh, the point of the tactics room is to try and view the game in a different light, a little bit of a, of a different angle to some of the biggest storylines. I want to avoid the same clickbait questions and storylines and instead Instead, go beneath the surface to analyze some of football's biggest stories, as I mentioned. Um, this is episode, uh, what did I say, six? It's number six, I think? Actually, it says it on my on my computer, episode six. So I know that we're on episode six, even though I said it two and a half minutes ago. Um, some of you have been here since episode one, and I, I don't forget you. Don't worry. I, I see every every single one of you. Hopefully, our podcast, our podcast network, our podcast family is growing, um, but the ones who've been here since episode one, when we were talking about Martin Odegaard. Jesse Marsh, and Memo Locatelli. I see each and every one of you, and I appreciate each and every one of you. That being said, if you're new, we are so, so happy to have you. Stay a while, kick your feet up, maybe crack open a cold one, um, but also uh, consider listening to the first few episodes of this podcast if you like what you hear in the next 45 minutes or so. So let's jump right into it then, because we've got uh, a really fun uh, list of topics that we're going to discuss today. We've got this Barcelona story, we've got Ajax to talk about, and we've also got uh, Florian Virch. Let's jump right into things with this Ronald Koeman story, of course, out at Barcelona, no longer the manager after uh, a season and change. He was brought in last summer with Kike Setien departing. He was brought in, well, truthfully, Setien was, was brought in to be that stopgap, right, between Ernesto Valverde and, uh, and, and whoever the next manager was. And instead, it's Koeman who's, who's kind of become the stopgap, right? Because because everyone thought after Setien left, it was going to be a player like Xavi or, or Eric Ten Hag. And instead, instead it was it was Ronald Koeman, who um, I remember even back at the time of the appointment, was uh, it was a bit controversial in the sense that, that uh, was he going to be the long-term answer? Um, evidently, no, he was not. And hindsight is twenty twenty. It's easy to make that judgment now. Um but the appointment, even back then, was was a bit interesting, especially given, and this is important to note, and I want to note this off the bat, and I alluded to it in the intro, 
Ronald Koeman was destined to fail given Barcelona's financial instability, given the COVID situation, given their transfer policies. Ronald Koeman was destined to fail at Barcelona. Um, And that doesn't fully absolve him, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But in terms of the situation that Koeman was inheriting with the instability in terms of of who was the president, because you remember at the time Bartomeu was, was resigning, Joan Laporta was was re-entering, um, and that happened under Ronald Koeman's tenure. Of course, coming with that is is financial instability. We all have have heard about the, the the saga that is this Barcelona debt that they've been in for years and years. He's the reason why Lionel Messi is now playing in Paris. Um, so so the situation that Koeman inherited was not a healthy one, not a good one, especially for one of Europe's giants. That being said, um, he still did some really confusing things. And I think when I when I speak with Barcelona fans and when I read Barcelona Barcelona-based writing and blogs and whatnot, the word that that I keep coming back to and that I keep seeing is stubborn. His stubbornness, his inability to to change tactics that obviously don't work. Even his inability to introduce new young players to the 11 in favor of of some of the aging players who were still around back when Pep Guardiola was in charge. Um, and that's the first thing that I want to talk about in terms of, of Ronald Koeman's tenure at Barcelona. And it's not inherently tactical. We'll get into the tactical stuff in a couple of minutes. But the way that Ronald Koeman treated youth at Barcelona, it, it, it was controversial because, I mean, did he, did he disregard it completely? No, because players like Pedri, uh, Ronald Araujo, Oscar Mangueta, Gabi have all uh, come into the team and played pretty significant roles. Under Ronald Koeman, these are all, all young players. So it's not like Koeman was was entering the fold and, and kicking La Masia products to the curb. But at the same time, he did prefer players like Sergio Busquets, Mirlan Pjanic at times, to, to some of the other young players who came through this academy. And, and in the case of Mateus Fernandez, purchased from another nation and just didn't get any opportunity at all. Names like Carlos Alenia, who's now <clears throat> off to Getafe. Names like Ricky Puj, who is now freed to an extent from the shackles of of the Kuman tenure? Because that beef, that that Pooj Kuman beef, was um, one of the big ones in terms of of Kuman just isolating and freezing out Ricky Pooj, who's a really really top rated talent within Barcelona and within the La Masia academy. So the way he treated youth was was intriguing. The preference of players like Busquets and Piquet. And, and players like Sergio Roberto and, and even to an extent Jordi Alba, although Alba in terms of, of Barcelona in possession has been fine. Out of possession, obviously, he still leaves a lot to be desired given his age and, and, and given who else Barcelona have in the team. Um, the way that Koeman treated youth is fascinating because we really don't know how to sum it all up because you've got these players who, who have really blossomed in, into key parts of the 11, but you've also got these other young players who have not been given a chance. So... That's where that stubbornness comes in. That preference to play some over others. Also, Elias Mariba, of course, up to RB Leipzig. But um, seemingly, Kuman had this preference to to play him and, and to sub him on in any situation when he had other players on the bench. Um, it really just, just just a bit baffling and, and intriguing to discuss. But there's three things specifically, tactically, that Ronald Kuman did that I want to get into. And the first is centered around one of those aging players that I was just talking about, and Sergio Busquets. Because Busquets is... It, it's difficult to to fully quantify Busquets's situation in this Barcelona team without A, gassing him up, and B, completely disregarding all the good things that he does in this Barcelona team. Because he is still a, a very skilled passer of the football when he's got space to operate, um, and that's what he's always been good at. But the way that Kuman has kind of shifted tactically between last season to this season, a season ago, we would see Barcelona playing a three-back. It would be that 3-4-3 three, three for the most part. And Frankie de Jong would be the one to to kind of receive and drive forward, and Busquets did that a bit. But Regardless, there was no need for either one of those players to really drop into the defense and and assist the center backs while the fullbacks advance up the pitch. And and that, for whatever reason, has changed this season. Uh, Kuman has gone to that 4-2-3-1, which, uh, or 4-3-3, depending on, on how you like it. And Busquets has been that player who's now had to drop deep, split the center backs, carry the ball forward, and assist defensively. And the problem is that Busquets just 
he just can't do that anymore. He doesn't offer as much defensively. He doesn't have the legs to consistently uh, track back and forth like that. But if you swap him with Frankie de Jong and have Frankie de Jong do that, which, by the way, is is um, part of the role that he played in his first season at Barcelona when his form was was constantly fluctuating up and down. If you swap him with de Jong, you take away his best attribute, which is driving forward into the opposition half and 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 creating havoc, essentially, with his passing and his dribbling ability. So that that shift from the three-back to the four-back and then pulling a, defend, uh, pulling a midfielder into the back line didn't make a whole lot of sense regardless, especially when Sergio Busquets was the one who had to do it. And and, and coupling with that, this is my issue number two with Ronald Koeman, and I'm, I'm only going to list three because if we went through every single thing, then this podcast would be two hours long. So if there's anything that I don't name that you think is is crucial please let me know on Twitter at Will Fowler five reply to, to whatever tweet you found this from on at BTLvid, whatever, because we could go on and on about this conversation. But again, I'm highlighting three. The first is that Busquets conundrum. The second is just the defensive structure at a whole involving Busquets, but just, just in general, the way that this team lined up, because again, a season ago, I mean, people forget Barcelona were, were Copa del Rey champions a season ago. I mean, they, they had one silverware last season, even with, Kuman maybe not reaching the heights that he should have with his Barcelona side, uh, especially with Lina Messi still in it. This was a Barcelona team that won a trophy a season ago playing in that 3-4-3, 3-4-2-1, however you want to call it. And then again, it switched. And that 3-4-3 was not perfect, but it was a heck of a lot better than what they had this season with that four back. Because the way that that Kuman set up his team in 2021-2022 was with a four-man defense and with a three-man midfield that included Busquets and De Jong, neither one of which you really want dropping to, to play in line with the center backs. So the alternative is to have one of your fullbacks stay and have the other one attack up the pitch and still have three at the back, but instead of it being two center backs and a midfielder, it's two center backs and you're, op- you're the, the opposite fullback. But this Barcelona team didn't do that either because you either had Serginho Dest playing on the right, who loves, I mean, we know Serginho Des loves to, to shuttle up and down that flank. He does that so much that, that Kuman actually started using him as an out-and-out winger towards the end of his tenure, which inspired a whole other host of issues, which we don't have time to get into right now. But on the other side, it was Jordi Alba, who did much of the same thing. Um, and so we saw plenty times this season, it was the back four with Alba and Dest getting high up the pitch, Busquets either trying to get back and play with the center backs or not having the the stamina or the legs to do so, we saw times where that center back pairing of whether it be Gerard Piquet and um, Ronald Araujo or Gerard Piquet and Eric Garcia or or maybe Clement Longley was, was, was playing at a certain point, um, none of their center backs are particularly gifted with pace. And so leaving both of the center backs essentially stranded while there are two other defenders flank up the pitch and while the only other option in midfield is somebody who's on the other side of 30 and doesn't have the legs to consistently do that anymore. We saw this Barcelona defense exposed, especially against popular three-man attacks that that Spanish sides really, really like to use. So that's the second thing is the defensive structure this season didn't make a whole lot of sense. In truth, if you look at Barcelona and expected goals versus expected goals allowed, they don't concede many expected goals allowed. It's actually, when I was looking at the stats, it's quite staggering. Their expected goals is very high, and their expected goals allowed is, it's not fantastic, but it's its not the worst in the league. It's, 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 it sits mid-table. The problem is, they'll play games like the one they just played against Rayo Vallecano, and give away one really good chance through a, a, a Busquets getting dispossessed, and then the center backs being caught out, and then Radamel Falcao, who loves the goal against Barcelona, taking advantage that's the only real big chance that Barcelona gave up, but it was a massive chance to concede, and it all came from that defensive structure, or rather the lack of defensive structure, because you've got Busquets and two center backs who aren't blessed with, with good pace, and fullbacks who needed time to track back, and they couldn't. So that defensive structure exposed against Rayo Vallecano, but it's been the same way all season long. And then the third thing that I want to highlight about Ronald Koeman of Barcelona and why and what went wrong, among other things, is their their strategy in attack and and what they did when they did string possession together and get the ball into the final third. And this, again, is something that Barcelona fans all over the globe will tell you, this over-reliance on crossing, this over-reliance on getting the ball to Jordi Alba and Sergio Dest and just having them whip balls into the box for whoever can last their heads onto them. That's part of the reason why this club brought in Luke de Jong over the summer was because they were planning on fully buying in to that 
that get the ball wide and just whip in cross after cross after cross and screw it, let's get a tall striker who can nod some of them in the goal. Now, Luke de Jong's form has been abysmal, and that might go down as, as one of the worst transfers of that window, just based on how little impact it's making on a club who already have so many problems in attack. But the reason why that over-reliance on crossing has even come about in the first place is this lack of creativity in midfield in the final third. Obviously, Pedri and Frankie de Jong are both very good midfielders, but they don't exactly provide a ton in terms of in the penalty area, getting into the penalty area, assists, key passes, expected assists. Um, that was always Messi's job. That was Messi playing over on the right or playing as a false nine, cutting infield or dropping deep and creating himself. And now that he's gone, and again, the reason why he's gone is not Ronald Koeman's fault. I'll say that again. The reason why Lionel Messi is gone is not the fault of the manager. It's the fault of the crippling debt and financial instability at this club that is that had been years in the making. But Messi leaving has exposed that. And we were always concerned, I think, of how would this Barcelona look without Lionel Messi? Because even prior to Ronald Koeman, even in the, the last few days of, of Ernesto Valverde and, and, of course, with the few months with Kike Setien, it seemed like this Barcelona without Lionel Messi were in trouble. And so it was it was scary, truthfully, thinking of what could Barcelona look like without the man that wears the number 10, the greatest player in the history of the sport. But I think what we've seen is a lot worse than what we could have possibly anticipated in terms of, of this this lack of ideas, this 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 try the same thing over and over and over again. This you know, the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I mean, that's what Barcelona have been doing this season in terms of finding ways to create chances. And again, <laughs> statistically, they've created chances just fine in terms of expected goals. But this is one way in which stats can lie, is Barcelona have the most expected goals and the most non-penalty expected goals out of any team in La Liga. But a lot of those are just half chances that they consistently accrue over a 90-minute match, none of them being particularly fantastic. And that, blink and you miss it, that turns into 2.3, 2.4 expected goals, but you can't remember one real clear-cut chance that they had. So that's that's my third thing with Barcelona, is this over-reliance on crossing, which comes from a lack of creativity in midfield. Um, I love Frankie de Jong. He's one of my favorite players on the entire planet. I think Pedri is is fully in the, the Golden Boy conversation, but they don't have that one real... Not a number 10, because number 10 is not super popular in Spanish football, but that one player who can who can consistently create goal, shot and goal-creating actions, the ones who can get forward and, and sit at the edge of the penalty area and pull strings and create goals. Frankie de Jong and Pedri do their best work prior to that phase. They don't really have somebody. I mean, Memphis Depay, I guess, was somebody they brought in to assist in that. Of course, Depay is, is a center forward or a left wing, depending on where he plays, but he does give a lot of creativity and attack with the Dutch national team, with Leon Pryor, but he hasn't really been able to tap into that. Um... So those are my three big things with Koeman's Barcelona is the Busquets conundrum, their defensive structure, and their over-reliance on the same tactic over and over again, which hasn't always worked. Um, that's why I, those are the three biggest reasons tactically why I think this failed. Now, again, this is, this is a subjective conversation. There are a whole bunch of different things that we can point to. If there's one that I missed, I want you to let me know because um, odds are I agree with you. I mean, odds are it's something that, that I, that I, I, uh, you know, odds are it's something that is extremely true and very accurate. But again, I only got around to three. There's plenty more. So let me know which ones you think are the most important, if you agree, if you disagree, and why else you think that this Ronald Koeman to Barcelona project did not work. Um, to wrap this up, though, to wrap up this Barcelona discussion, again, I mean, I don't think Koeman deserves all the blame. And I mentioned this at the top. And I'll mention it again. I don't think Ronald Koeman deserves all of the blame for this situation. Yes, he made some baffling tactical decisions. Yes, he froze out some really talented young players. But Ronald Koeman joined the club as manager in one of its worst and most confusing times in modern history. Ronald Koeman joined Barcelona in one of its worst and most confusing times in modern history. He couldn't bring in the players he wanted. Of course, he was strapped with this financial burden that he had no control over. Instead of bringing in these, these players like Lautaro Martinez, Erling Holland, he had to settle for players like, like, like Luke de Jong and Sergio Aguero, who are, are <laughs> in the case of Aguero, an injury-riddled striker who's past his prime. In the case of Luke de Jong, just not a very good striker in terms of 
anything that doesn't involve being good in the air. Um, so there are things that are out of his control. And it's the same issues that would have struck Xavi if he came in in the summer of 2020. It's the same issues that would have struck a manager like, Aaron Ten Hag, like Eric Ten Hag if he came in in the summer of 2020. But that doesn't fully absolve Ronald Koeman because even with those issues and even with players like Luis Suarez, players like Lionel Messi, essentially being forced out of the team for financial reasons, this Barcelona side still played without an identity, without any real incision, without any, 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 any cunning ability. I was trying to think of a word that I could use to describe that, but cunning ability will have to settle for now. They played without all of that throughout most of his tenure, and that does fall on the shoulders of Ronald Koeman. Now, who could replace him this time? Again, at the time of recording, it seems pretty clear-cut that it's going to be Xavi. Uh, that will be interesting to watch because uh, these problems will not go away overnight, but Xavi at Al-Sad in Qatar has been really, really fun to watch. I strongly suggest watching Al-Sad play a match in the Qatar Stars League because, I mean, it, it is... It, it, it looks like it looks like Xavi's Barcelona. It really it really does. It, it, it's beautiful football. And you know that those are the same principles that will be instilled into this Barcelona team. I think also in terms of, of a, a public relations perspective, bringing in Xavi over a, play, over a manager like Antonio Conte or Eric Ten Hag maybe gives the board a bit more time because the, if, if things do go sour, Xavi will have a, a longer leash in terms of, of the Barcelona fans. But, man, I don't know because it's a tough situation and it's not getting any better. Um, and it's going to be a problem that the new manager will have to deal with on day one. That being said, there is still quality in this team. Ronald Koeman wasn't able to fully tap into it. Maybe somebody like Xavi is. All right, let's, uh, let's pivot. <laughs> let's pivot to something a little bit happier. Um, from, from what, how about this? From one European giant to another. I think that's a good segue. And yes, Ajax are a European giant. Um, they have been tearing things apart. I mean, they, they have been <laughs> absolutely running the show in every competition they've played in so far. It's really, really been fantastic. And, and, you know, those of us who dare to dream and who, who are <laughs> uh, like me, who are a bit less grounded in reality in terms of storylines like this one, you're instantly brought back to, oh, can they, can they go on a 2018, 2019 esque champions league run when they got within seconds of a champions league final? Um, I mean, of course that team with Frankie de Jong, with Matthias de Ligt, with, Tony van de Beek with Hakim Ziyech. That was a fantastic, fantastic team. And it was a fantastic run. And Ajax, the way they're playing now with running, well, not running away with Eredivisie, but with with, uh, extending their lead at the top of Eredivisie with a comfortable 5-0 win over PSV over the weekend, coupled with uh, the the 4-0 destruction of Borussia Dortmund at the Johan Cruyff Arena and the fact that they're winning their group uh, which also includes Sporting and Besiktas. I mean, you look at this Ajax side, and, and it's no fluke. I mean, genuinely, it's no fluke the the way that they're playing because it's a really, really talented side led by a really, really talented coach in Eric Ten Hag. And that's what I wanted to dive into. I, I wanted to take a look and, and fully understand, is this a team that can make a run like that again, or, or is it one that, it, was that a one-time thing? Was that was that special? Um, and so I dove into a little bit about this Ajax team. I, I, I watched them a bit more closely. I watched them a bit more often than I, than I had prior. Um, and one thing that I really, really love about 2021-2022 Ajax is that it's, <laughs> it's very much a modern-day version of Johan Cruyff's total football. It it really is, the resemblance is almost uncanny in terms of when you go back and watch those Dutch sides, those Ajax sides of the 70s and the 80s versus the way that Ajax play now. Um, There are obviously some differences, the the biggest one being the way that those Cruyff teams pressed. It wasn't even really a press, it was a mob. It was let's all run after the ball and hope we can win it as soon as we possibly can. Obviously that's a bit more structured now, but Many of the, the basic and common principles of that, that generational, influential play style that Johan Cruyff created and that has largely carried into the game today, um, we see that fully resembled in this Ajax team, which is, it, it, it makes it so, so cool. I mean, some of the, the basic principles of Total Football, the way that this team presses, high and aggressive, that's, that's what they did 
with with Cruyff, that's what they do now. The way that they play with width, the way that they use a number 10, uh, which at the time when Cruyff was a player was almost unheard of, a number 10 in midfield in place of of a defender. Uh, A number 10 with with that center forward as a decoy, which is something that, that they to an extent do today at Ajax. Uh, center backs that can step into midfield with midfielders that can provide cover for the center back, a high defensive line. I mean, these are all properties of Johan Cruyff's game-changing, influential system, and they're all properties that we see with Ajax today. It's almost like like looking through a, a, a time machine to an extent because it's very it's the the principles are are very parallel to each other. Um, the two things that I love about this Ajax side. That I want to talk about first are the way that it, it the, every this <laughs> I'm having trouble even finding the words for it. This Ajax side they do two things very very well. They play with width, which as I said is something that was was a main principle of total football, and they also prioritize technical ability, which is something that uh, you don't really notice unless you fully watch them. At least in terms of of Europe as a whole, that that ability to have everybody play with such skill on the ball um, is. So beautiful with the way that, that Ajax play football. Everybody is skilled on the ball. Everybody understands where the first touch has to be. Everybody passes the ball well. Everybody reads the game well. And it, it's it's a network of players who, obviously some are more technically gifted than others, but it's a network of players who just when they're all clicking, when they're all playing together, it seems like Ajax just are, are always one or two steps ahead of the opposition. Whether it's a club like like uh, PSV in Eredivisie or somebody lower down on the table like Heron Wiener Twente or even a Borussia Dortmund who they stomped on in the Champions League. I mean, it really does not matter who the opposition is. If Ajax are playing at their best, they look one or two steps ahead of wherever the opposition is. They're all on the same page. And again, that technical ability allows Ajax to play beautiful, sexy football while also not giving the ball away cheaply. And then the other thing that I mentioned was the way that they play with width. And that's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that in a bit more detail in the coming minutes. But, but the basics of it, the way that this Ajax team can play so wide, it comes down to a couple players. The first is Edson Alvarez, who actually doesn't even play in defense. He plays in midfield. He'll usually play as the deepest of a midfield three. But the reason why he's so important, he plays two big roles in that holding role. He'll drop into the center of defense sometimes to A, allow the fullbacks of Daly Blind and Mazraoui to get wide and advance up the pitch. And he also helps, if, if there's one weakness in this Ajax side, it's height in defense. Urien Timber and Lissandra Martinez are not tall. They're not physically imposing, physically gifted. I think Timber is 5'10 and Martinez is, is 5'11. Edson Alvarez is 6'3". So he'll drop into defense. He'll allow the fullbacks to get forward, but he'll also help with with aerial duels and and because you know there's a lot of of specifically that PSV match Carlos Vinicius is looming he, he is six foot two standing the penalty area against Borussia Dortmund Erling Holland is is a big big guy and going up against shorter center backs who are better technically they play the ball better but don't give much aerially a player like Edson Alvarez really helps shore up those issues so those are the two roles that Edson Alvarez plays in this team um, but again he allows Daly Blind and Noir Mezraoui to get wide to stretch the defense and to create space within the opposition, which is the one core principle of total football, is to find a way to manipulate space within your opposition's defensive structure, allowing Blinda Mezraoui and further up the pitch player like Dusan Tadic and Anthony to get wide will just inherently create more space in the opposition. Uh, Blinda Mezraoui specifically, they need to be pressed tightly and marked closely because Daily Blind, truthfully, is Ajax's chief creator on the left side of play, and Mezraoui can play the ball well as well. Again, another, I'm going to say it a million times, technically gifted player who links with Anthony very well, can also link with a player like Steven Burkhouse, pouring him a little bit later. Um, but those two players, when they get free and when they get wide and when they attack, they still need to be marked closely. Even though they're fullbacks, they still need to be played closely because both can play in midfield as well. Those other two players that help with with Dusan Tadic and Anthony they also look to, to kind of, it's it's not to the same extent as Daily Blind and Mezraoui, the way that they they kind of hug the touchline. They're not chalk on the boots wingers by any stretch of the imagination. If if any one of these two players is more of a chalk on the boots winger, it's, it's certainly Anthony. 
But even he's a player who will look to get centrally and at, at times he looked to, to cut in field. But in the buildup, when, when Ajax have the ball in possession and they're looking to, to get the ball into the final third, we'll see Tadic and Anthony stay near the sidelines to stretch out the opposition's back line. That gives Ryan Gravenberch and Steven Berghaus to run into when the defense is stretched. Um, so that that's the way that width plays a massive role in this Ajax side. It's just stretching the defense with these technically gifted players, players who are good with the ball at their feet, that require attention from the defense to open up channels and space in the opposition. When the ball is in the final third, Ajax also like to, to create overloads with, with 2v1s, 3v2s, because they've got a lot of players who can create problems in the attacking phases of the game, in the attacking third. There's three major links that uh, that that Ajax do in attack that cause the defense problems. The first is on the left, the way that Daily Blind links with Dusan Tadic. Um, we spoke about both uh, a couple minutes ago, but again, Blind, the chief creator on that left side versus Tadic, who can stay on the left. But during that Champions League run, Tadic was the center forward, and he was flanked by David Neres and Hakim Ziyech. So Tadic, a player who is not... Uh, unused to getting into central positions. Um, you've got on the right, you've got Anthony and Mazraoui, which is a, a fascinating link. I'll talk about Anthony a lot in a little bit. And actually, if you listen to episode five of the Tactics Room, you heard a little bit of Anthony discussion as well from uh, from Alex and I, because we're both very, very high on him. But the way that that link operates on the right side of play, two skilled, quick players, Anthony specifically, the the, the flair and the, the composure with the ball at his feet are, are really, really difficult to defend against. But my favorite one is the one that comes through the middle, and it comes with Sebastian Hilaire and Steven Berghaus. Both players are so unique and intriguing to me. Sebastian Hilaire was looked at as a Premier League reject two years ago, less than two years ago, when he kind of flopped at West Ham in the Premier League. He went to Ajax, and people thought that would be the last that we would ever hear from him. He plays as the center forward in a front three, and mostly will play as a target man. If you know what Sebastian Heller looks like, very tall, very strong, physically imposing. So he can back down center backs and get into the box and, and essentially bully defenders and, and score goals. But that's not all that he does. In build-up play, he'll sometimes drop in front of the center back into the half space and link with midfielders to hold up play, which, again, going back to that total football trend, is a must for anybody who plays in this team, the ability to link player A with player B. Um, Sebastian Hilaire does that very well in this system. And he's not asked to do it every single time I accept the ball, but when he is called upon to do it, he does it well. And he's not dropping super deep, but he is dropping deep enough to force the defender to make a decision on should they come and meet him or should they sit back and let him turn with the ball because he's strong, he uses his body well, and he's very effective as doing that, at doing that. But again, if 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 Sebastian Hilaire has, has taken a few feet in between him and the center back and the center back comes to press, that's where Steven Burkhouse comes into play because Burkhouse is a, he's playing as, as depending on the way I act it up, either as a number 10 or on the right of a midfield three. Um, but don't get it twisted. I mean, this guy is a forward. He, he is, is a, a right wing at time striker who is playing in, in midfield for Ajax. And if you follow Dutch football closely, you know how controversial a transfer this was, uh, how controversial a transfer this was when Steven Berghaus moved from Feyenoord, of course, the two bitter Dutch rivals going back decades. That move was made. I believe he, he's if not the only player to make that direct jump, he's certainly the highest profile player to make that jump from Feyenoord to Ajax. Because a season ago, I mean, 30 goal contributions for Feyenoord, 18 goals, 12 assists. Um, the transfer was mind-blowing for, for Dutch football fans because that's not a link that happens very frequently, especially when it when it's Feyenoord's star player. But he's been off to a flying start at Ajax, three goals, six assists. And that's where that link with Sebastian Hilaire can be so powerful, is Hilaire comes in, if that throws the defense into disarray at all, I mean, uh, Steven Burkhouse is a player with instincts in front of goals. He's a player who doesn't think twice about taking a chance. He runs into those channels. Those channels are also made wider by the width that's created by Dusan Tadic and Anthony because the defense is being stretched out. So Steven Burkhouse in this Ajax team is really being set up to thrive. The, the, the tactics in attack, when... You've got the defense that's being stretched and channels that open up. A player like Burkhouse, who's coming in and making runs from midfield when he's not really a midfielder by trade, uh, cause, causes all sorts of problems. 
This is a player in Burkhouse who also likes to get to the right side of play, links with Anthony, but when he links with Hilaire, I think is when they are the most lethal. That's when the channels are there for him to run into. Um, and also, Burkhouse's presence as the number 10 and Edson Alvarez as that that holding midfielder to an extent with either either Blind or Masraoui stepping into midfield. This is why some Barcelona fans, I'm going to go back to the Kuma story for a little bit, this is why some Barcelona fans really wanted Eric Ten Hag because Kuman didn't really do this. He didn't set up his team in a way that that created a whole wealth of, of passing outlets and passing angles and passing options. What Ten Hag does with Ajax, with Burkhaus as a number 10 and with Edson Alvarez as a holding midfielder, he creates essentially three diamonds. And that gives you a whole wealth of options when you've got the ball at your feet, even if you're being marked tightly. Uh, but again, most of these Ajax players are technically gifted enough where a, a, a tight press is not uh, terminal by any stretch of the imagination. It creates three diamonds, and it creates plenty of options to pass to, and it, that's why Ajax are so good in possession. They love to have the ball, Ajax. 66% possession in the Eredivisie is most. 60% possession in the Champions League, which is the fifth most. Um, no surprise, pressing highly and pressing aggressively and keeping possession is another one of those total football characteristics that we, we can go on for hours. By the way, uh, speaking of, of total football, and this is one of my tangents that I'm going to go on. If you're new to the pod, if you're a returning listener to the podcast, you know that I go on these tangents all the time. Um, but the book Zonal Marking, the first four chapters, first three chapters, it's by Michael Cox. The book Zonal Marking tells you everything you need to know about not just total football and, and Dutch football and the way they play, but the way that tactics have evolved since the, the 80s up until present day. So go and read that book. That's where I got my knowledge of, of total football from. Fantastic book. You'll love it. Okay, back to Ajax. Um, total football, what were we talking about? Total football, overloads, 2v1s, 3v2s. Yes. Um, two players that I want to mention who play massively important roles. Anthony is exactly the type of winger that Johan Cruyff would have loved if he could have watched this team play in 2021 2022 because his technical ability I mean he is he is your your trademark Brazilian winger. He's got plenty of technical ability, plenty of flair. I mean this guy on the ball one on one with defenders is is just it's it's cinema. It, it it's must see stuff. He runs at defenders and again, he's not a chuck on the boots kind of winger, but he does his best work when he's wide and isolated with a midfielder because he's so dangerous. His his change of direction is so quick and he's just he's so he he's dynamic with the ball at his feet. He can work with both. He can cut infield if Ajax have runners coming into the penalty area. Again, the, the type of, of flair-filled, individualistic, wide player that Johan Cruyff would have absolutely fallen in love with. He is your trademark. Anthony is your modern Dutch winger who happens to be from Brazil. I think that that's how we... He's your average Dutch winger with Brazilian flair. That's what Anthony is because he plays like, uh, like, like, a Dutch, uh, like, a, like a Dutch winger should. But he's got that Brazilian flair that essentially every single Brazilian attacker has. So that's Anthony. And the other player who who needs to be named is Ryan Gravenberch, the 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 next star of this Ajax midfield, maybe the next star of the Dutch national team. He's been really, really highly heralded since he came into the team. A box-to-box midfielder who really helps make this team go. There are not a whole lot of weaknesses in Ryan Gravenberch's game, aside from maybe his experience. He progresses the ball effectively. He's good with both feet. He's one of those players who, when you see him move with the ball at his feet, he just seems to glide. He just seems to move so quickly and so freely. He uses his body well. He shields the ball well. He likes to get into advanced positions to create overloads. And that's part of the reason, he is part of the reason why Ajax are so deadly in attack is because you've got Anthony, Tadic, Haller, Berghaus, but you've also got Ryan Gravenberch, who can make these runs, these late runs, these third-man runs, these underlapping runs from midfield, and and just create an overload in the penalty area. I mean, when you watch Ajax play against PSV, against Borussia Dortmund, against anybody else in Eredivisie, against Sporting, when they they dispatched Sporting on day one uh, of the Champions League, they there are times when Ajax will have six or seven players in or around the penalty area, and it's Anthony, it's Tadic, it's Haller, it's Berghaus, but it's also Gravenberch because he'll make those runs. It's at times players like Blin or Masraoui, players who are, are attack-minded but play in defense, will oftentimes get that high as well. I mean, it's just, it's such a fluid, fun team to watch, and it perfectly, perfectly summarizes 
what Dutch total football is in the year 2021. What is their ceiling? That's the big question. What is their ceiling? <laughs> because as I said, I, I led into this discussion wondering if they can make that kind of run again. I genuinely think they can. I mean, it's not a side that you have to expect, oh, it's semifinal or bust, but this is an Ajax side that I think personally right now, based on the talent they have and based on how well they know their tactics and their system, Ajax are one of the best teams in Europe at the current moment, and that's bolstered by sleeping giants like Barcelona, sleeping giants like maybe Manchester United you can throw into that conversation, sleeping giants like potentially even Real Madrid, who, who, who are not as good as they should be, and Ajax are taking full advantage of that. But even still, I mean, Ajax are, I, I mean, I don't, off the top of my head, I would put PSG, Bayern Munich, Manchester City ahead of them. Liverpool probably up ahead of them, Chelsea maybe, but there's not a whole lot of clubs in Europe that I would say are better than Ajax pound for pound right now. They legitimately are one of the top eight, top nine teams in Europe, I would say. That's how good and how effective and efficient this team is, led by a brilliant tactician in Eric Ten Hag. So are they better than the one that came within seconds of a Champions League final in 2019? Not sure. I don't want to jump to any conclusions yet. Let's watch this side maybe in a Champions League knockout round first before we jump to any conclusions, because remember, that team knocked off Real Madrid and Juventus before losing to Spurs in the Champions in the Champions League semifinal. I think my issue with this Ajax team is they might still be a bit leaky in defense against stronger opposition, uh, A, with their lack of fight, as I mentioned, but also B, I mean, Mesraoui and Blind do get high at the pitch, and Edson Alvarez has been prone to mistakes in defense here and there. So I think that's my biggest question mark with this Ajax team against the best teams in Europe is how will they hold up defensively. But it's a minor blip on the radar given how good they do everything else. I think a, a Champions League run is not expected, but it's very, very much in the cards for this Ajax side. Again, I feel like I'm watching Johan Cruyff's total football 40, 35, 40 years later. That's, that's how uncanny this resemblance is. Go and watch them. I mean, there there are resources where you can find those those Ajax teams, those Dutch teams from the 70s and the 80s. Go and watch them as well. Footballia.com. Strongly recommend that website if you want to watch these old school, old school teams play. I mean, Ajax, I feel like I'm watching a modern day version of that. They are so much fun. They understand the system, and they are a really, really tough team to beat in Europe for anybody, not just teams in the Eredivisie. Anybody will have a tough time with this Ajax side. So, sadly, uh, that brings us to our final, well, second final technically, but in terms of big stories, our final story of the evening, or morning, or night, whenever you're listening, our final story of the episode, which is uh, this brilliant German wonder kid who I want to sit down and discuss for a little bit, named Florian Wirtz. Now, if you're following Bundesliga or or Europa League or just... (laughs) the sport. I mean, you've probably heard about the attacking midfielder for Bayer Leverkusen, who is contributing to as many goals as names like Mohamed Salah, Karim Benzema, and Kylian Mbappe. But if you haven't, um, allow me to introduce you to one Mr. Florian Wirtz, who is taking the Bundesliga by storm this season. He's an attacking midfielder for Bayer Leverkusen, a club that is no stranger to producing fine attacking talents. They've already produced plenty just in recent years. In, in the, the the names of, of Kai Havertz has come through the Bayer Leverkusen system. Leon Bailey, who's now at Aston Villa. Musa Diaby is a player that they have in their team right now. Julian Brandt came through Bayer Leverkusen. Uh, this is a team. This is a club that have produced some really really good attacking talent. Florian Wirtz, I don't want to get ahead of myself. May end up being one of the best. Four goals, six assists in Bundesliga this season. Again, up there with the likes of Salah, Benzema, Kylian Mbappe in terms of goal contributions in Europe. Um, and he also made his national team debut last month. He, he, got, he got the nod in, I believe, we're, I should know this, but I believe it was World Cup qualifying. I don't think it was a Nations League match. I believe he got the nod in a World Cup qualifying match from Hansi Flick, of course, the new German national team manager. Um, and naturally, uh, we're talking about Florian Wirtz as a player who is, is drawing comparisons to Kai Havertz, who is another uh, highly regarded attacking midfielder very prolific in terms of final output, uh, who came through by our Leverkusen and now, of course, is playing at Chelsea. So, I mean, those comparisons between Havertz and Wirtz are going to be 
natural. They're going to be normal. Um, are they fair? Uh, that's not for me to decide. Um, but the the way that the, the timelines have lined up, I mean, I mean, Havertz came through the Bayer Leverkusen Academy when I mean he he started there young. He started when he was like eight or nine years old, and I believe it was twenty sixteen when he made his debut for Bayer Leverkusen. Stayed there for a handful of years, just lit it up, became one of the best young players in in, in one of the best young players in world football, really, when he was at Bayer Leverkusen, and of course moved to Chelsea and. When he moved to Chelsea was kind of when we saw Wirtz take over. And, of course, there's kind of been a one-season gap in terms of becoming a prolific player. Wirtz a season ago wasn't uh, – he showed signs, but he wasn't he wasn't where he is now. So there was a bit of layover. But for the most part, when Havertz left is when Wirtz came. Um, Wirtz is a player who we were hearing about for a long time, even before he – Made his debut. I believe there were a couple matches where, where Havertz was still at Leverkusen and uh, and Florian Wirtz was on the bench and coming in making substitute appearances. I got to fact check myself on that, but um, that timeline has naturally uh, offered itself as the biggest storyline. But Florian Wirtz is his own player, and there are two things that stand out to me when watching this kid play, and they are his movements and his anticipation. And those two things, before I even break anything down. Those are two things that largely cannot be taught, which is why Florian Wirtz is a player who has a lot of German football fans and Bayer Leverkusen supporters thinking the best, thinking the best possible thing they can about a player of his quality. Because the way he anticipates the game, the way he reads the game, and the way he moves to find space are uh, really, really advanced beyond his years. He's got a knack for finding space between the lines, even when the defense, even when the defense is sitting in a low block, he's he's a fantastic player to watch over ninety minutes, and he's one of those players who you can just follow around. I mean, you, you can watch a Bayer Leverkusen match, put your eyes on the man wearing number twenty seven, and just follow him around for a full ninety minutes, and it, it's such a joy to watch. Um, he the, these subtle movements that he pulls off to free himself up and place him in the center of of triangles that that form in the defense consistently when when Leverkusen have the ball in the attacking half. I mean, his understanding of that is really, really top-notch. His understanding of when to move, how to find space, and how to anticipate are really, really good. And like similar to Ajax, he always seems to be reading the game two steps ahead of everybody else. So whether that's by moving into space to anticipate a ball that hasn't come yet, or his ability to to play incisive through balls. He's in the 97th percentile in terms of, of how many successful through balls he completes per 90 minutes. He had a fantastic first touch, the way he anticipates the way defenders are going to come on to him, and then he touches accordingly, or the way he he constantly scans the pitch. I mean, you watch you watch Florian Wirtz play, and he's always looking over his shoulders, which, I mean, that that's a trait that we've heard all-time great midfielders, Andrea Pirlo, Xavi, Iniesta, these midfielders who, who who were so good for so long, I mean, that was what they attributed their success to. And that's largely the way that they, they became so good was their ability to constantly understand what's going on in the game by constantly scanning, scanning and understanding where the defense is. Because a defense is, this is going to sound silly, but a defense is a living, breathing thing. It's constantly changing. And if you're not always looking over your shoulder, seeing who's moving where, you're not going to have an updated vision of what the game looks like in a current moment. Some midfielders don't do that. The ones that do are the ones that are at the top of the sport. Florian Veers does it very, very well. And that anticipation, that movement, that scanning, they're bolstered and they're, 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 they're really exposed in a good way. I can't find a word for it. But they're emphasized. That's a word. But an, an elite passing ability and elite dribbling ability. I mean, Florian Wirtz is a superb passer at all three levels, particularly his long ball ability. He is he, he completes 66% of his, his long passes. That's 85th percentile among attacking midfielders and wingers in Europe. Uh, 0.26 expected assists per 90. That's 94th percentile. 2.38 key passes per 90. That's 89th percentile. Um, I mean, he really, in terms of incisive, cunning passing, is one of the best. Not just in Germany, but in Europe, despite his age. And the stats will show you that. Uh, but it's not just his passing. It's his dribbling as well. Because when you look at, at the actions, the, the shot-creating actions and the goal-creating actions that he's a part of, in terms of shot-creating actions, he does it both with his passing ability and with his dribbling ability. 93rd percentile uh, in, in shot-creating actions from, from passing the ball, 
84th percentile in shot creating actions from dribbling the ball. Goal creating actions, he's actually even better. He's in the 91st percentile in goal creating actions from live passing, 97th percentile in goal creating actions from his dribbling. So whatever he does with the ball, whether he's passing the ball or whether he's running at a defender, he is going to make something happen. He's going to create a chance. He's going to score a goal. That, that's just the nature of the way he plays and the positions that he takes up because he's a player who, and this is rare. I mean, this is this is something that that I don't, I don't think I've mentioned on the podcast, but I've thought for a while. Using the, the phrase, quote, a bit, uh, the, the freedom to roam is a phrase that I think is misused in a lot of instances. I think a lot of people think that, oh, he, he, he finds a lot of different places on the pitch, so he's got the freedom to roam. Well, well not necessarily, because tactically, uh, maybe something changes when a substitute comes on and, and, you're, and the player is taking on different positions. Or, or maybe depending on, on, maybe there's a different way to attack the defense and this player has been moved over here. So just because a player is taking up different positions doesn't mean they truly have the freedom to roam. Freedom to roam, for me, is you're on the pitch, run around, find space, and, and create chances. I think there are, there are a handful of players who really have a trademark freedom to roam in football. And two off the top of my head are Lionel Messi and Thomas Muller. Those two players have freedom, full freedom to roam, not barred by any particular structure. Florian Wirtz is damn near that. The way that, the way that he just roams around the pitch and finds space and, and makes things happen from wherever he is, Florian Wirtz is a player, I think, with true freedom to roam in this Bayer Leverkusen side. One other trait that I like about him in possession before we discuss what he does out of possession is he, he's got very good pace. He's very quick, and he's also very direct, which makes him a nightmare to deal with when he takes up those other attacking positions because he's, he's going to run at you, and he's going to run at you quickly. When he wins the ball, he takes the path of least resistance when he's running with it, and that does two things. It A, it creates lightning quick moves for a Leverkusen side that has pace around him in the form of, of specifically Musa Diaby, but but also makes them really, really effective on the counterattack because Wirtz wastes no time when he's got the ball. He picks up the ball and he runs at you, which I think might be a difference between him and Havertz and a difference between him and virtually maybe every other uh, prolific number 10 on the planet is he is a direct player. He will, again, the path of least resistance, he will run right down the throat of a defense and it makes Leverkusen so much more vertical, but also so much quicker. And of course, that inherently leads to goals. And while he's a predominantly he's predominantly right-footed in terms of passing, he's shown this ability to score with both feet, whether it's his right, whether it's his left. And that, coupled with his pace and coupled with his directness, it's a triple threat. It just makes him an absolute nightmare to defend against one-on-one because you've got no idea how to anticipate what he's going to do. You've got no idea, is he going to turn this way? Is he going to turn this way? Is he going to shoot off his left? Is he going to shoot off his right? Oh, he's got a runner coming off his back shoulder. Is he going to lay it off or is he going to shoot himself? I mean, he is really difficult to anticipate in those situations, and that, unsurprisingly, is where a lot of his goals come from. Out of possession, he's also equally as, well, maybe not equally as as impressive, but he's very, very impressive because he's a player who, he presses well. He presses very well relative to other attacking midfielders and other strikers, and when you've got a player who can press the ball, win the ball, and move the ball at the pitch quickly, you've got a damn good number 10. In terms of, of Wirtz specifically, 6.45 successful pressures, with a, which is 95th percentile among attacking midfielders and wingers. And he, 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 he's effective as well. He's efficient. 31.6% of his pressures are successful. That's 90th percentile. Uh, he is, is, we see a lot, players who, who press a lot aren't always the most efficient at, at pressing. A lot of times they'll, they'll, they'll press a lot with a success rate between 25 and 30%, which is still good, but you get a player in VR2 who presses a lot and presses effectively. Really, really good in that regard. And then when he wins the ball back, he's in the 93rd percentile of successful dribbles uh, with 2.53 completed at a 3.80. And he, he's a player who dribbles a lot as well. That's not just, just completing a dribble every two or three games. He completes 2.53 dribbles per 90, which is 86 percentile. So I mean, Wirtz is involved with everything this Leverkusen side do, and he does it all so, so well. The final verdict, <laughs> the final verdict, if he's not, he, he's four years younger than I am. We're, we're already pulling out the final verdict on this player. No, he's going to be a, a star. He's going to be very, very good, whether he stays in the Bundesliga and makes that inevitable move to a club like Bayern, 
or if he, he chooses to go elsewhere. I mean, he's the kind of number 10 that, you know, we, we talk a lot about how maybe the number 10 is, is a dying art. Maybe teams are starting to revert back to that traditional 4-3-3 with a holding midfielder. But, I mean, Wirtz is the kind of number 10 that can succeed in today's football, I think. Because, yes, he creates chances, he takes advanced positions, but he can do other things as well, like pressing, like completing dribbles, like linking up with other players. Wirtz is, is a player who, give him time to develop further. It's scary to think that he's still not at the peak of his powers, but give him time to develop further, and he will get even, even better. Better than Kai Havertz at Leverkusen? Not sure. That might be a little bit disrespectful because Havertz at Leverkusen was a really, really skilled player. But if Wirtz continues along this trajectory, I don't think it's disrespectful to say that he could potentially get there because... I mean, we've been hearing about him since Havertz was at Leverkusen. We're starting to see it, and it's been fully, fully impressive. Florian Wirtz, the wonder kid taking, one of the wonder kids taking over the Bundesliga, um, because there's plenty in in that division that are really, really impressive. Maybe Florian Wirtz, the pick of the bunch. Four goals, six assists in Bundesliga this season at the time of recording, and he's only going to get better. All right, so that's out of the way. Barcelona, Ajax, Wirtz, and again, if you're a returning listener, you know what's coming now. If you're a new listener, this is where it gets funky because this is what I teased in the beginning but didn't uh, didn't provide any more details on it. I know it's been, what, 55 minutes. You've probably forgotten about it by now. But uh, let's get into it. Bet the Bank for Episode 6. Now, Bet the Bank, for my new listeners, uh, essentially what it is is it's not a, a betting segment. Instead, it's a segment where... Um, well, some backstory on myself. I'm a big fan of, of youth talent. I love understanding the, the youth prospects, who's next, essentially. I love learning about who we're going to be discussing as the best in the world in five years. And so Bet the Bank is a segment where I go after um, some of the, the, the young talents in the world who I think are, are going to be there, essentially, who I, I, I'm saying Bet the Bank on because this player is going to be special. Um, I think episode six, uh, this one, is the deepest I've gone for a player yet. And and it's still not particularly deep, but uh, yeah, we're, we're progressively getting more and more obscure. We started with a simple one. We started with Dominic Sobitzlite back on episode one. Then we pivoted to Karim Adeyemi at RB Salzburg. Then we went to Ricardo Pepe in episode four. And episode three, I, I picked somebody who I don't remember, and I probably should, and it's going to bother me. But I don't remember who my episode three uh, bet the bank player was. Let me see if I can find it. It was, uh, you know what? I don't think I did one, which is fine. Oh, you know what I did in episode three? I did my my young players to watch in in the Champions League. So I give you actually six. I give you six bet the bank players back on uh, back on episode three. So we're we're coming back to it on episode six because of course we didn't do it last episode with our, our conversation with with uh, with. Alex Barker, although he did give us Anthony as a player that he liked that nobody knew about, so maybe that's our bet the bank player. For this week, we're going to Liga Nos. We're going to Liga Portugal for one of the division's youngest and rawest, and for some uh, supporters of, of rival clubs, most controversial players in Francisco Conchechal of FC Porto. This guy is, if you haven't watched Porto play yet, um, you're probably not missing out on a whole lot in terms of seeing Conceição play because he has not played a whole lot for the senior level team in league play. Just 18 years of age, Conceição has seen limited minutes for Porto in Liga Nos play since joining up with the senior level team last season. But when he has played, and again, it's been mostly in cup competitions, it's really difficult to keep your eyes off of him. And that's because even at, at his young age, his dribbling ability is his calling card. His dribbling ability is already so advanced, so refined, so beautiful to watch, and that is <laughs> maybe the sole reason what makes him such a hot prospect right this minute, why he's such a, an attraction right now. Francisco Conchichao is his dribbling ability. Um, he plays for a Porto side where his dad, Sergio, is the coach, but you know you watch his his ability, and actually we, we've heard Sergio Conchichao talk about this on interviews, he does not. Sh- he, he's not showing his son favoritism. The, the minutes that he earns are ones that that he earned rightfully, and so far we have been seeing that. When I watch Conchesau play, the word that I kept going back to and, and thinking of, and that I couldn't shake from my head, was shifty. 
That's, I think, the best word that we can use to describe this Portuguese player, this Francisco Conceição of FC Porto. Six, he, he's only 5'7", five, 5'7", seven, five seven, uh, which is 1 meter 7 for all of my, my uh, non-customary non, uh, system users, all you who use the metric system. He's 1 meter 7 tall, and he's slim, which already makes him so hard to dispossess. But his ability to manipulate the ball with his feet and his ability to, to change direction so quickly and keep the ball on a string, essentially, I mean, that's what makes him so much fun to watch. He reminds me a bit, and this is going to my, to my Spurs fandom, which I've kept out for this episode, but it's hard not to get Brian Heal vibes from watching Francisco Conceição because Heal as well is a player who is heralded on his dribbling ability. That's what he does best. That's his main calling card so far. But similar to Conceição, and this is something that, that they've both got to work on, is they don't offer much in terms of finishing yet. And in today's football, where wingers are being asked to get more central and score more goals, developing that, adding that to your pocket knife, will be essential. But as as Conceição grows, both physically and mentally, that will come. I'm not super concerned um, in terms of, of him developing that, because what he's so good at now is something that you can't teach. And that's that that otherworldly dribbling ability that makes it so hard to dispossess. He's actually developed a bit of a reputation for going down a bit easy due to due to his size, but also because you get frustrated when you defend against a player of his quality, of his dribbling quality. You 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 get embarrassed a little bit because he's just toying with the ball and and and, and again, we haven't seen it a whole lot at the, the senior level in the league, but you youth videos that you can find and um, when he plays in, in cup competition, it's really, really fun to watch. Um, loads of pace that helps him get free down whatever side he's playing on. Even with those current shortcomings, the, the, the lack of finishing, and he also doesn't offer a whole lot out of possession. Even with those current shortcomings, I mean, his talent and potential are undeniable. And in the coming months and seasons, whether he stays at Porto or gets a loan that gives him more consistent playing time, this is a player, Francisco Conceição, who will develop into a real, real starlet. I believe so. Still very, very raw. Again, 18 years of age. But he does some things that you don't see from players in their prime in terms of dribbling, and those other things will develop as he gets more playing time. Again, very young still, very new to the the senior-level football scene. Give him time. He will be a real player. Francisco Conceição. My bet the bank player for episode six. That's for all my Liga Portugal fans who I I've, I've kind of been freezing out in this episode, which I, I'm not or in this this uh, this podcast so far, which I don't feel good about. I want to I want to get the Portuguese league involved a little bit more. Um, I think this is my first time mentioning it on uh, on the podcast, which uh, which is not something that I enjoy doing because I do that is a fascinating league and it's one that I want to talk about a little bit more in depth. So maybe episode seven we'll have ourselves a Liga Nosh storyline uh a bit a bit more more thorough and 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 deep than than this one was but francisco conchichao of fc porto my bet the bank player for episode six and that will do it for today's episode oh my gosh an hour and six minutes before editing i'm uh sorry to all of you who are listening along and we're expecting 45 minutes and instead got an audiobook but um, that'll do it for this episode of the Tactics Room. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. I, I really do. I hope you enjoyed this episode um, just as much as I did because this is one that I, that I enjoy doing my research for. It was a good time. Um, and yeah, glad, glad you listened. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to follow uh, a couple accounts on Twitter. Be sure to follow me at WillFowler5 on Twitter. Um, and be sure to follow Breaking the Lines on Twitter at BTLVid. Um, both of them, uh, certainly Breaking the Lines more so than myself, are good follows. Uh, and if you like this style content, this tactical analysis style content, you're going to want to keep an eye on our website as well, BreakingTheLines.com, where we've got daily content detailing some of the biggest players, teams, storylines in the world, but broken down from a tactical perspective. So that's who you need to follow, at WillFowler5, at BTLVid. Also, I want to throw in a plug because the BTL Podcast Network, the Breaking the Lines Podcast Network, is expanding, which is very, very exciting, effective about three, I believe, days ago. Well, actually, no, because they've got two episodes as a, as a member of the BTL family. 
Um, it's a French football podcast, Casa Les Lignes, uh, which is breaking the lines in French. Um, go in and listen to that podcast as well. I heard their first episode as a part of the BTL family. They broke down New Classique between PSG and Olympique de Marseille. Uh, fantastic episode. They've just got another episode dropped, I believe, at the time of recording, two days ago. I've got to go get myself caught up and listen to that episode. I think you should as well. Casa Les Lignes. The newest addition to the Breaking the Lines podcast family joins up with, of course, us here at the Tactics Room, but also Cortalinas, which is our Portuguese football podcast. Go and listen to that one as well. That will do it for myself. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you back here next week for episode seven. Already planning it. Think we're going to get a guest on. Also think we're going to dissect Brentford and how they've been so good to start their first ever Premier League campaign. Not an episode you're going to want to miss. So again, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at WillFowler5 at BTLVid. You have been listening to the Tactics Room Podcast presented by Breaking the Lines.